all my crime weekends welcome to Kaleidoscope of Crime, a bi-weekly podcast about both solved and unsolved Canadian crimes. I am your host, Tanya. I am not an expert in anything whatsoever. I am just an opinionated, potty-mouthed, true crime addict who wants to give a voice to the forgotten victims of crime. While I do not go into graphic, gory details of the crimes, I do discuss crimes that are perpetrated against women, children, men, and animals. Listener discretion is advised. We will be discussing the murders of Scott Dow and Nancy Fillmore. Unfortunately, Nancy Fillmore's life and murder have become a minor footnote in this crazy case, so I can't say as much as I would like about her. So, we will just have to start with Scott Dow and leave her in as much as we can. In 1970, Scott was an 18-year-old hippie who lived with his family in Connecticut and spent summers at the family cabin in Wilberforce, Ontario. Here, he would meet the love of his life, Sherelle Scott. Scott could not know that the beautiful, red-headed 15-year-old was already struggling with drug and alcohol addictions that would plague her for the rest of her life. And when combined with her skilled manipulation tactics and overt sexuality and narcissism would prove fatal to Scott in the end. For Scott, it was love at first sight. He would do anything for this beautiful, dramatic, flamboyant woman, and in the end, he would even give up his life for her. The pair were married on New Year's Eve, 1971, and moved into the Dell family cabin in part so that Scott could dodge the draft. The couple then moved to Oshawa, Ontario, where Scott worked at GM until Sherelle decided that they should move to Pembroke, where they began to care for special needs foster children and adopted one baby girl in their care. At some point, Sherelle had left to go to Toronto for a year, and when she came back, she was pregnant with a daughter who Scott would later adopt and raise as his own. By all accounts, Scott loved and adored this daughter and doted on her throughout the rest of his life. In 1989, the family moved to a small farm near Killaloe, a small village of 700 people, where they continued to run their foster home and embraced the hippie lifestyle. Scott would remain married to Cheryl for 21 years, but his heart would be hers forever. By the time of their divorce, they had added a son to their family. Due to a court-ordered publication ban at the time, we do not know the names of of any of their children, but after all they've been through, I don't think we need to know. Let's just respect their privacy, okay? Over the course of their marriage, Scott endured Sherelle's manipulative control and abuse. She would love bomb him, belittle him, and cheat on him regularly. Within the small community, Sherelle developed a reputation for being manipulative, vindictive, dramatic, promiscuous, and controlling. But through it all, Scott recognized his wife's lies and manipulations, but he loved her very much and viewed her as having mental health issues. 
He saw himself as her caretaker and dismissed her power trips, lies, and other bad behaviors as, that's just Shirelle. Okay, crime beacons, here is my soapbox rant for today. Don't say that. Abusive, manipulative, controlling language and behavior is never okay. By dismissing these things, we enable the abuser to continue their behaviors and give them the space to escalate and perhaps even become dangerous, as we will see Sherelle did in this case. Abusive, manipulative, coercive control is never acceptable. Don't dismiss it when other people are experiencing it or ignore your own gut instinct. Please, my own personal experience has taught me that this is a really bad idea. Okay, that's enough of that one. Let's get back to the case of Scott Dell. In 1992, Sherelle Dell joined a incest survivors group, and this would mark the end of the 21-year marriage of Scott and Sherelle Dell. Given the fact that Sherelle is such a skilled liar and will make false accusations of abuse, we do not know for sure if she is a survivor of incest or if it Attending this group was simply one of her ways of creating drama and seeking attention. Either way, a survivor's group is a great place to meet vulnerable people who may make excellent targets for a narcissistic plot waffle like Sherelle. And that is exactly what happened. Sherelle would meet a woman named Dave Doherty, who was a non-incest survivor and a lesbian. And these things would combine to make her a very right target for the likes of Sherelle Bell. The two hit it off immediately and began an affair, and eventually, after Scott refused to enter into a plural marriage with the two women, Sherelle moved in with A. Gay would later testify that Scott had warned her that she had no idea what she was getting into, and that he was not angry or aggressive about the situation, but rather he seemed resigned to it. The separation began a long, nasty divorce in which Sherelle coached her adoptive daughter to make false allegations of sexual abuse against Scott. In addition, Sherelle would make false allegations that Scott was physically abusing herself and the children, forcing social services and police to waste their time investigating simply so that she could try to win. All of these allegations would eventually be proven to be completely false, and at one point, Judge F. E. Dunlap ruled in Scott's favor, saying that Mrs. Dell showed a, quote, appalling lack of consideration and concern for the interests of the infants in the prosecution of her design to destroy the respondent's reputation by re repetitive and unfounded allegations of sexual impropriety to mask or mitigate her own inadequacies. He further stated, there is no question that the various agencies and institutions involved have been besieged by unnecessary and excessive, unwarranted complaints. End quote. He ordered Mrs. Dell to vacate the Dell farm and ordered custody of the children to be shared between the two of them. In a 1994 psychiatric report done in January as part of the custody battle, Dr. Dave McLean called her, quote, a rather immature, narcissistic, self-indulgent person. She has an inordinate need for affection and finds it difficult to satisfy this. 
Other individuals would be expected to ignore their own feelings or needs in favor of her wishes. She would frequently be viewed by others as conceited, spoiled, or disdainful. He also stated that she was inclined to believe she is above the conventions or ethics of society and acts accordingly without considering the consequences of her actions. Although she is likely to be rather gregarious and outgoing on first impression, she does not relate very well to other people. She tends to be guarded and harbor chronic feelings of bitterness and resentment. She is highly sensitive to criticism and, to avoid rejection, becomes adept in manipulating people. Sherelle suffers from some long-standing personality difficulties marked by traits of immaturity, grandiosity, manipulativeness, and self-centeredness. Crime Beacons, I could be oversimplifying here. But to me, that's just a fancy, educated way of saying that Sherelle Dell is a narcissistic, manipulative, horny, controlling bitch who will do anything to get what she wants and harm anyone who she believes is in her way, or who she no longer finds useful. What a charming soul. She's the kind of person who not wants to be the center of the universe. But instead, I propose that rather than simply push her to the back burner, she should be shoved right underneath the stove with the rest of the greasy, slimy, gross crud that is there. In the midst of this epic battle, Scott was diagnosed with an aggressive form of throat cancer in the spring of 1994. Throughout his treatment, Scott's primary thought was of his children, and he fought hard and beat the cancer, receiving a clean bill of health in January of 1995. This, however, was no good to Sherelle Dell who was counting on a big PA, full custody of the children, and ownership of the farm after Scott's death. During this time, Sherelle had continued to live in Gay Doherty's home and subject her to the same abuses that she had Scott. But eventually, Gay found the strength to kick Sherelle out and would later state, that the only reason she had stayed was for the sake of the children, but she just couldn't stay any longer because she was feeling suffocated by Sherelle's manipulation, control, and abuse. Undeterred, Sherelle moved into her own home on Bowling Street and soon answered a lonely hearts ad placed by 37-year-old Nancy Fillmore in the Ottawa Citizen. Nancy was a social worker living in Ottawa at the time and the two embarked on a whirlwind long-distance romance. Although Nancy did see some red flags, she would later say that everything happened so fast she didn't have a chance to think about it or turn around and stop the relationship. Nancy would say that at first, Sherelle had seemed hypnotic and sweet, but it didn't take long for her true powers to show. During this time, Sherelle spun all kinds of wild tales and lies and played the victim and won Nancy over very quickly. Sherelle managed to obtain a mortgage on a home on Mills Road in July of 1995 by telling the mortgage agent that her ex-husband was dying of cancer and she would be inheriting a life insurance policy and telling the real estate agent that Nancy Fillmore would be making the down payment. Apparently, the fact that Scott's cancer was in remission was a minor detail. All she needed now was a way to accomplish what the cancer had not. Scott Dell was in the way, and he had to go. Sherelle divided her time living in her home on Bowling Street, 
during the week and spending weekends staying with her friends Kim and Randy Knott and also eating all of her meals there, frequently bringing her children along. During these visits, Kim and Randy would witness Sherelle's rage over Scott's cancer remission, as well as how sweet and kind she became whenever he came to visit her or the children. They also witnessed the children's love for Scott and began to question Sherelle's allegations of abuse when they would see how eagerly and excitedly the children would greet Scott. Kim Knott became aware of Sherelle's habit of drugging the children with Benadryl and Tylenol to make them sleep. She would give it to them every single night, and they would sleep so soundly that they would wet their beds every night and have to wash all their sheets in the morning. Wow! Yet another red flag that went completely unnoticed. What kind of mother drugs her own children? One day when Sherelle was home alone at the Knott's house, the Knott's cat was mysteriously drugged with antifreeze. Also at this time, Gay Doherty and Sherelle's eldest daughter would report having heard Sherelle on the telephone talking to either poison control or a veterinarian, depending on which coverage you are reading, asking how much antifreeze it would take to poison a person. We can't know for sure, but I suspect that this poor cat was a test run for Sherelle's grand plan to kill Scott and inherit the farm she could use so that she could use the proceeds to purchase the house on Mills Road that she wanted and obtain full custody of the children. During this time, Sherelle showed an inordinate interest in the cat's death and asked all kinds of creepy questions like what did it look like and how much antifreeze would it have taken to kill the cat. Meanwhile, Scott attempted to move on from Sherelle and had a short-lived relationship with a woman by the name of Sue Quas. But, unfortunately, Sherelle's hold was too strong on Scott, and all he could think or talk about was Sherelle. So Sue Quas ended the relationship just before Christmas, and as a result, Scott went and spent his final Christmas with Sherelle's family, where, by all accounts, Scott was in good spirits and looking forward to the future. He would return home on December 27th, where Sherelle's devious, disgusting plan to get what she wanted would be set into motion, and by December 29th, Scott would be dead. Sherelle gave Scott a bottle of white wine laced with antifreeze and instructed him to listen to their favorite songs and write down his thoughts of her as they talked on the phone all night on December 28th. They talked for nine hours that night. As they spoke, Scott wrote, quote, I feel like holding you close to me like never before. I feel like making love to you. I feel like all of the bad stuff would go away, end quote. And, quote, what do you think was going to happen if I drank a bottle of wine listening to music we used to listen to? I'm going to think about you and me together. I can't help it. I don't want to want you. I don't want to be rejected. If we don't get back together, we maybe shouldn't see each other very much, end quote. Before he hung up the phone, he told Sherelle he saw visions of her as an angel, and she responded cryptically, quote, My angel spirit will take you to heaven, end quote. How sick and cold is that? This bitch is beyond twisted. By this time, Scott would have been feeling incredibly sick, and so he headed to bed to rest but he would be found the next day on his bedroom floor, half-naked and 
dead. This beloved, caring man who had bravely battled cancer without ever once complaining and who was looking forward to life had been ripped out of the lives of everyone who loved him just to satisfy the greedy needs of his selfish ex-wife. Scott was scheduled to pick up his children for a visit the following day, December 30th. And when he failed to pick his children up as scheduled, Sherelle conveniently arranged for her ex-girlfriend, Gay Doherty, to go check on him. In the months since their breakup, Gay had remained friends with Sherelle and had also become good friends with Scott. And so she had come from Texas to visit Sherelle over Christmas and was at the house when he did not show up. And she knew it was unlikely to be late picking up his children because he lived for his time with his kids and something had to be wrong for him not to be there. So she went to check. When Gay arrived at the log farmhouse, she found the door ajar and upon entering she found the half-drank bottle of Le Piedor with a strange-looking liquid inside and Scott's odd writings. Climbing the stairs, she could not have known what she was going to find and was disturbed to see Scott's half-naked body at the foot of his bed. Not only had his wife arranged his death, but she had even orchestrated for her ex and Scott's friend to make the most horrific discovery of her life. Poor Gay did not deserve this. Gay would later testify that when she told Sherelle about Scott's death, she seemed unconcerned and she asked what he looked like. Sherelle wasted no time spinning her tales and telling her lies to police and anyone else who would listen, saying that Scott's cancer had returned and caused him to commit suicide and once again accusing him of all sorts of abuse. All of this despite the fact that literally everyone who knew him described him as happy and life-affirming. In spite of Sherelle's best attempts to have Scott's body cremated as quickly as possible, police and family intervened and an autopsy was performed in which it was determined that Scott had died of antifreeze poisoning and was completely cancer-free despite what Sherelle was trying to say. In spite of the family's concerns and all of Sherelle's lies, police determined that Scott had committed suicide. That is, until March 18, 1997, when Nancy Fillmore walked into the Killaloo police station and confessed to her role in Scott's murder. Over the course of two taped interviews with police, Nancy confessed to purchasing the antifreeze and wine and then watching Sherelle pour the antifreeze into the wine before giving it to Scott Dell as a belated Christmas present. Although these interviews would not be used in court later, they did provide investigators with the thread that they needed to begin to unravel Sherelle's mountain of lies and bury her underneath it. Sherelle was arrested in December 1997 and charged with first-degree murder in the death of her ex-husband, Scott Dell. In her judge-only trial, countless friends and relatives of both Scott and Sherelle testified to Sherelle's hatred of Scott her lies and manipulations, and the nightly dosing of her children with Tylenol and Benadryl to make them sleep. In addition, every single witness testified to Scott's will to live, his love for and devotion to his children and Sherelle. People testified to the children's love for Scott and the fact that he was completely cancer-free. In so doing, these witnesses utterly destroyed Cheryl's claims that Scott's cancer had returned and as a result he had become suicidal. 
The most difficult testimony came from Scott and Sherelle's daughter, who testified that she had overheard her mother calling either poison control or a veterinarian and asking how much antifreeze it would take to kill a person, and to being in fear of her mother after her father's death because Scott was no longer there to protect her. The most damning statement she made was her recalling hearing her mother say to Nancy, I knew what Gay was going to find. Nancy Fillmore was unable to testify at Sherelle's trial and her videotapes were ruled inadmissible due to the fact that Sherelle had silenced Nancy. Nancy Fillmore had met a young man by the name of Brent Crawford at the local community centre where she volunteered and he was learning carpentry. And through Nancy, Brent met Sherelle. And in spite of warnings from those around him, he was smitten with Sherelle and taken in by her charms. Sherelle seduced him and plied him with drugs and alcohol and eventually convinced him to kill Nancy in order to prevent her from testifying at the trial. And so, late one August night, Brent snuck into Nancy's home and knocked over a burning candle while she was passed out drunk and Nancy would die in the fire of smoke inhalation. As part of a Mr. Big Sting operation, Brent would write down his confession on a piece of paper and stick it underneath the windshield wiper of the undercover officer's vehicle, and he would also confess to his parents, though he would recant these confessions at trial. In spite of Nancy's death and the fact that she could not testify against Sherelle, she had managed to start the, the ball rolling and police and investigators and prosecutors as well as Cheryl's own family and friends would carry it across the finish line. And in February 2001, Sherelle Dell was convicted of first degree murder with no possibility of parole for 25 years. Sherelle later pled guilty to counseling Fillmore's killer as opposed to a murder charge, though I have not been able to find what her sentence was on this. Brent Crawford was convicted in May 2001 of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with parole eligibility in 10 years. I haven't been able to find any information on his trial. In the years since their conviction, Sherelle first failed her appeal and then, at a painful clause hearing, held in 2016 to try and get her parole eligibility reduced, Judge Moranger ruled against Sherelle. In his written decision, Moranger found that Dell has, quote, lied pathologically about her life story. Her persistent misrepresentations and inability to tell the truth while incarcerated for the murder make it unlikely a jury would recommend to the National Parole Board that it should consider granting her an early release, end quote. From an article published in the National Post on January 21, 2016, quote, Moranger found glaring and persistent examples of Dell's lies that included claims she was of Aboriginal heritage, that she has a university education, that she has no history of substance abuse, and that her husband had sexually assaulted their children, end quote. Apparently, that old dog can't learn any new tricks. Although Sherelle had completed some self-help programming and improvement training, the judge felt that all of this was far too recent to be of much benefit to her in seeking parole.
In my completely unqualified opinion, Shirelle only completed those courses in an effort to look good and to win her painful clause hearing so that she could get her parole. Sherelle Dell should be eligible for parole in 2026. In February 2019, newspapers reported that Brent Crawford had been granted an unescorted weekend pass from Beaver Creek Correctional Institute, despite being classified as a moderate risk to reoffend, and he had failed to return at the scheduled time. Brent was subsequently found in a halfway house and taken back into custody without any incident, and that is the last report on either Brent Crawford or scumbag Sherelle Dell. While Crime Beacons, that was a wild, crazy case. Sherelle Dell is a perfect example of how destructive and dangerous a narcissist can be. If you have a narcissist in your life, get away from them, please. I know from personal experience how damaging these people can be. And that is why I decided to cover this case, because we all need to be aware of the carnage and destruction that a narcissist can leave in their wake, and learn to be aware of them. And now that we're done talking about all of that disgustingness, I would like to finish this episode by remembering and acknowledging all of Sherelle's victims, both the named and the unnamed. First off, Scott's children, who suffered mental, emotional, and physical abuse at the hands of their mother, as well as the loss of their father, just to satisfy the greedy, selfish wants of their mother. We can only hope that they have been able to find healing, stability, and therapy, and are now leading happy lives. Nancy Fillmore. I wish I'd been able to learn more about Nancy. We don't know a lot. We do know that she was a social worker, and she volunteered at the local community center which would indicate that she was a caring person who wanted to help others. We know that she was lonely and looking for love. Sherelle Dell preyed on her loneliness and took advantage of her and wrapped her up in a situation she was not prepared for and did not deserve. Nor did she deserve to pay the ultimate price for doing the right thing and trying to seek justice for Scott Dell. Neither Nancy nor her family deserved any of this. May Nancy rest in peace, and may her family find solace in each other and in the memories of Nancy. And the many friends and family members of Sherelle and Scott, who seemed to turn a blind eye to Sherelle's mental, psychological, and physical abuse, were also victims. They were just as twisted in her web, and when a person is wrapped in the web, it is often only in hindsight that we're able to see the massive red flags that were waving right in our faces. My most recent personal experience with a person just like Sherelle has taught me that not even prior experience with these types of individuals can prepare us for the devastation and destruction of the next one. I hope that everyone affected by this evil platypus has been successful in picking up the pieces and realizing that none of this was their fault. Next, we have Gay Doherty, who was a kind-loving person and who stayed and endured horrific abuse in order to protect children who were not even her legal responsibility. When she was finally able to extricate herself from the situation somewhat, she began to see through many of Sherelle's lies and deceptions and to see Scott for who he truly was only to be set up to make the most horrific discovery of her life. Gay endured brutal testimony and cross-examination at Sherelle's trial, and for that I feel she was a brave, strong, strong soul. 
I hope her life improved after this brutal chat. And finally, Scott Dell, who was only 44 at the time of his death. In newspaper reports and court testimony, friends spoke of a man who, when he was faced with the prospect of losing his tongue due to cancer, immediately began recording himself reading stories to his children so they would still be able to hear his voice. Through it all, he still wanted to help her. He deserved to grow old, to rebuild his life, and to watch his children grow. He did not deserve to die, and his children did not deserve to lose such an incredible parent. Fly high in heaven, Scott, and may you always be remembered. Well, that's it for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Crime. I hope you enjoyed the second episode. I have been your host, Tanya, and I hope you will be back again for the next episode. Sources used for this episode will be listed in the show notes. All writing, research, recording, and editing is done by me. Music is from Joseph Midday Music. Cover art was created and supplied by my friend CJ, who is the amazing lady behind Beyond the Rainbow True Crimes of the LGBT Podcast. I hope you will go check her out if you aren't already a listener. Editing and technology assistance was supplied by Jason Peters, and I would like to send a special thank you to Ian Brannan of Frost Podcast and Coming Soon Sons of Cain Podcast, Eric A. Carter Landy from Crimes and Consequences Podcast. Without you guys, I could not have done this. Thank you for listening. Until next time, my clan beacons. Have a great two weeks. Bye.